Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hi folks, today we are talking to Luke Murray, aka The Irish Physio. Now Luke is the physiotherapist for Arsenal Academy FC, for London Irish Academy Rugby Club, all whilst working as a specialist musculoskeletal therapist, uh, physiotherapist for the National Health Service. Rob and I ask Luke, what are the other conditions that can cause sciatic type pain? This is a great episode for anyone suffering with pain down the leg, into the thigh or the buttock, or anyone who's being diagnosed or, you know, self-diagnosed with sciatica. We take a whistle-stop tour of some of the other conditions that can cause sciatic-type pain, other than what we've already discussed in previous episodes. Expect to learn more about your anatomy and what could be causing your pain. As always, guys, if you like what we do, the best compliment you can pay us is to head over to iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use and give us a glowing review. It really, really does help us. And if you really like what we do, then you can head over to our website, www.thebackpainpodcast.co.uk.com and click on the buy us a coffee link. Uh, it's basically only fans, but for lattes and it caffeinates us ready for the next show. So here you go, guys. Luke Murray, the Irish physio on what is causing my sciatica. Here we go. So what actually is sciatica? Sciatica is uh, a broad umbrella term for a uh pain down the back of the leg. I think if you were to if you were to ask different people what sciatica is, I think you'd probably get a number of different answers. So sciatica in general it means different things to different people. I think if we, we walk down the road here in London and we ask a lot of different people what is sciatica, they'd probably give you a fairly good idea of what it is. Probably pain, probably say pain in their lower back, pain maybe in the hip, maybe in the leg or the foot. Um, and that's why I think we're probably here today is to clarify exactly what sciatica is and the, the ambiguity around it and try and probably discuss more about uh, the new terminology that we use as healthcare professionals being ridiculopathy and particular pain or birthday. So generally, sciatica, I think for the general public, we'll probably think of it as pain down the leg. Yeah, I think that's our experience too. You know, you have patients come in and they say, I've got sciatica. And that can be anything from shooting pain in the back to shooting pain into the buttocks to kind of radiating pain down the leg. You know, it's, it's a very kind of umbrella term. And it's, as, as we know from experience, it, you know, it's the same for us. It doesn't, you know, it's not really a diagnosis. It's just a description of, you know, some pain really, isn't it? And just some uh, mm. ir- irritation of, of that nerve. So is that the same, we talk about sciatica being that, you know, radicular pain. Is that the same as a radiculopathy? I know these are terms that people may have seen on, x-ray reports and GP letters and you know letters from consultants and these terms get thrown around. Are they the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. They're slightly different. And I think um, it's probably good to get the definitions down from the get-go so that people know exactly what we're talking about. Um, so I suppose we have we can't really talk about these things and not talk about Tom Jessen, the, the king of sciatica, hmm. who just released his new book um, on sciatica. And uh, I suppose in my understanding of radicular pain would be um, radicular being 
a problem at the nerve root. So the problem at the base of the back where the nerves come out of the spinal column is where the pathology or the injury is. And then um, that sends pain down the back of the leg, very, very sharp shooting and maybe a straight line down the back of the leg along the sciatic nerve. That's what radicular pain is. It's like a gain in function, hyper, hypersensitive nerve. And when we think of the, when we think of radiculopathy, by definition, radiculopathy has nothing to do with pain. It's more of a loss of function of that nerve. So again, the problem is uh, radic in it, so it's uh, lacking for the nerve root, and that's where that's where the pathology is. You've got a problem at the nerve root that affects the nerve sciatic nerve down the back of the leg, and then with that, you have a loss of function. So potentially, you might have like patches of numbness down the leg. You might have like reduced uh, reduced reflexes. You might actually have some reduce strength in your leg as well. You might notice that again, maybe walking on your tiptoes is, is tricky or um, walking around or pushing off from a chair can be difficult as well if you've got weakness down your leg. So that's where the two terms differ. Radicular pain being a gain in function of the nerve, uh, lots and lots of pain, and then uh, radiculopathy being a loss of function of that nerve being more weakness. With both of them, you may get types of neuropathic symptoms down the leg. Neuropathic being like a loss, uh, or maybe like tingling and burning and pins and needles all the way down the leg. Um, so that's sort of a brief overview of what they both are. Um, and I suppose people, when they use sciatica interchangeably, will, will they may be talking about radicular pain, they may be talking about radiculopathy. And I suppose the big debate is, does it really matter? Um, hmm. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I think in terms of clinicians, we should probably be speaking to be as accurate as we possibly can so that we can be as, I suppose, maybe as accurate or as specific in our treatment when we present with this type of issue down the back of the and, and you can have either or or both, I guess, as well. Because so there'll be some patients with just pain and there'll be some patients with, you know, just pins and needles and a bit of low back pain and, you know, or people with just weakness. And so it's very varied. So just, just because you don't have pain or just because you don't have pins and needles or weakness, it doesn't really matter you know it, it may not matter to us but for the patient it doesn't really matter you know it's that the diagnosis can be the same diagnosis and two patients can present completely differently you know as, as we've all seen from experience really yeah i mean it's very nice to talk about it in terms of distinct um signs and symptoms of radicular pain and radiculopathy but in the real world being great messy humans that we are we like to um, present with lots of confusing things and you might get painful radiculopathy where you've got a nice mix of the two. You've got raging pain down the back of your leg and you've got reduction in your reflexes and you've got a reduction in your strength as well. And um, that's the weird and wonderful part of clinical practice that these things can sort of be mixed and matched together and not so fun to the patient. Though. No, and I'm sure there'll be people listening to this th- screaming at it going, yes, that's me. You know, that's, <laughs> I, I have all of these symptoms and these are the people which we feel really sorry for when they come limping into clinic really and uh, it's, uh, it's it's really awful to see so yeah so how is this diagnosed then so i mean are there tests that we do that confirm it's the sciatic nerve that's irritated you know what do we do as clinicians to our patients to to confirm it i suppose um i suppose step one whether you're doing a virtual consultation or you're doing a face-to-face consultation you're going to be delving deep into their uh, history and their experience so um, I think a, a good physio or a good chiro or a good osteopath will sit down with the patient and let them tell their story. And um, you may ex- you may start to explain uh, to your healthcare healthcare professional that you um, 
you had uh, a sharp maybe incident where you've got this raging pain in your lower back that's gone down the back of the leg. And then when, when we hear those type of things, we're starting to think, okay, maybe this is something to do with the, with the lower back. Maybe this is something to do with uh, mechanical compression of the disc that, or from the disc on the nerve that's causing the issues on the back of the leg. And then from there, um, we'll probably ask you uh, some more questions about like what we would consider red flags, so to rule out something that's more sinister that's more dangerous and more nasty, that might need urgent referral to um, to uh, like a emergency department or to an orthopedic doctor. Um, but once we've ruled those things out, then we can start to get on with uh, some more actual tests. So what we would do is we, you might find that your physio has a look at the sensation down your leg. So have a look at sensation on your right leg and your left leg, maybe with a light touch like a cotton bud. Maybe they might use a pinprick or something like that to have a look at different types of nerve fibers that innervate the legs from the lower back. And um, they may also look at your strength. So we'll test the strength of your legs in general, look at your knee strength, your ankle strength, see if there's any um, obvious weaknesses between both sides. And then we'll also have a little look at your reflexes as well, down around your ankle and your knee, see if there's any um, exaggerated reflex or less of a reflex where it might be diminished, completely gone. And uh, we also might have a little look at uh, doing different tests like a straight leg test or a sump test and basically that is exactly as it says in the tin, a straight leg test we might get you to lie down on your back and we might passively lift your leg up and see if that reproduces any of that pain um, in your back of your leg and if we're doing a sump test we can sit you on the edge of bed, you might slump so rounding your upper back, rounding your chin chin towards your chest and then straightening out your leg and see if there's any reproduction so if all those sort of things are, are, are coming back positive or, or coming back um, to what we would consider typical of radiculopathy or radicular pain, then we would start to treat as we would expect somebody to be treated with radiculopathy. Good. And I'm sure lots of people who have had all those tests, the slumps test and the SLR test are the ones which are, you know, most people will probably have done as standard when they go and see someone with low back pain and a bit of leg pain or maybe not necessarily leg pain but uh, you know those tests are are pretty common I said they're, they're day one in you know back pain for you know osteophysio chiro school really aren't they and uh, it's something we do That's as it, our yeah. bread and butter mm. now obviously there are lots of other things that can cause a bit of low back pain a bit of leg pain some kind of you know, radiating pain possibly even some kind of pins and needles and that kind of loss of loss of sensation and that's the reason that we do all of these tests and these kind of in-depth questioning about history. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to chat to you today is about what else can cause kind of low back and leg pain. And I know that you've, did a, you've written a brilliant blog post on this, which we'll link to in the, in the show notes below. So if anyone listening wants to go away and read this in a bit more detail, they can uh, go, go and have a, have a read of your brilliant article. So I know that if we kind of break it down into a few different body parts, as we said, there are a few different things that can cause similar symptoms. So do you want to take us away with a few things that can potentially cause similar symptoms? Um, you know, should we start with some things in around the hip that can cause a bit of pain in around the, the low back, the back of the hip, into the leg? Yeah, sure. Um, so I suppose, well, I mean, we could probably talk all day about different pathologies in the hip that might cause similar symptoms to radiculopathy or radicular pain. So um, something that's, that's very uh, common that people might be trying to differentiate is this like sciatica or is this uh, something hip might be something like hip arthritis. So um, if you're somebody that's say over the age of maybe 45 
you might start to get some stiffness in the morning time. Maybe it's around inside of your groin. Maybe it's around the front of your hip. And um, your say you get up in the morning time and you start to move around, and then it eases off within maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, you're thinking maybe this is more of uh, arthritis in the hip as opposed to something coming from the lumbar spine in the lower back. So the hip is a tricky one because uh, there was a study in 2008 that showed um, it can refer to multiple different places, a bit like the sciatic nerve. So it can refer into your, say, your knee. So a, a, lot, a lot of times you'll hear people that have been treated a lot for their knee, but actually the problem was in their hip. They had arthritis in their hip the whole time and it wasn't the knee at all. And then in some other cases, you'll get people that uh, will have arthritis in the hip that will refer to the foot. So that's, that's really, really uncommon, but it does actually happen. So it's important that when you go and see your healthcare professional that they screen you appropriately for um, arthritis of the hip as opposed to something in the back. That would be, that'd be one thing that you might potentially get from, uh, that might masquerade as um, a sciatica type of pain. But then you can also get something like... Um, like a tendinopathy. So you might get something like on the outside of your hip, like a, a glute med tendinopathy. Glute med just being one of the muscles, part of your, your buttock muscles that attaches onto that bone on the outside of your hip. And, and for anyone that's listening now, you could probably, if you're wondering, oh, have I got this glute med tendinopathy or have I got a sciatica type of pain? You can have a little feel on the outside of your hip. It's a nice big bone called your breast canter on the outside of your hip. Have a little poke around there and see if you can get some actual um, pain reproduction that's familiar to you. If you're not getting any pain around that area, then maybe it's not likely that it's a duke need and not. But the thing to remember with that is you can get referral down the outside of your thigh. So if you have a glute need and you might get referral on the outside of your thigh. It most likely is going to be pain. You probably won't get any of those nervy type of symptoms like uh, burning or pins and needles, tingling, anything like that. That would be pretty abnormal. You shouldn't get any changes in sensation on the outside of your thigh. Um, you might also notice that you've had a change in your activity levels. So maybe you're, um, you've increased the amount of running you're doing to get out of the house during COVID and you've started to get more um, discomfort on the outside of your hip and into your thigh. And it's more likely to happen in women as opposed to, to men as well. And just normal things might be uncomfortable. You're like standing on one leg to get your leg into a trousers or a dress. Like that might be uncomfortable. Um, maybe climbing the stairs is uncomfortable all around that last that outside of your hip and maybe sitting, standing from a sitting position as well can reproduce all of that discomfort on the outside of your hip. So, um, it's very different to sciatica and that obviously sciatica goes through the path of the sciatic nerve, which is in the middle of your buttock and then into the middle of the back of your leg and then maybe into the back of your knee, straight down the back of the calf and the outside of your calf as well. You might get discomfort there. Whereas lateral pain on the outside of your hip from glute tendinopathy more likely going to stay more local to that area and maybe outside of the thigh as well. Uh, so they would be some things that you could get from the hip. Uh, I was also reading uh, a few articles um, trying to prep for this and um, there was, I was reading an article by <coughs> Joanne Kemp, who's a researcher in um, hip pathologies in young people uh, and in older people as well, but a lot of athletic populations. And um, a lot of the populations that he uh, looks into are have conditions called femoral acetabular impingement, which is uh, abbreviated to FAI, which some people might have heard of. And um, that's basically an umbrella term in the same way that we would use sciatica as an umbrella term. FAI is, is an umbrella term as well in that it, it covers some different bony pathologies inside in the hip itself. And um, 
generally that can present similar to hip arthritis, but it's going to be in a much younger, chances are it's in a much younger population. They might be, um, they might be over the age of 18 and they're very active. They're doing a lot of sports where they, they twist and rotate or they, they perform lots of hip flexion. Hip flexion being where they might kick the ball and swing their leg up really high or bring their, their knee up towards their, their shoulder and that might cause some discomfort deep within the hip or at the front of the hip. Um, that would be another thing that people might confuse with, um, with sciatica. But I think the, the main thing to remember is one of the references in that, in the paper I was reading said that if somebody has maybe a, an FAI and they're struggling to maintain their activity, they probably had a gradual onset of that pain. And chances are the pain is going to be in around deep in the groin or the, or the front of the hip. And if you have pain that's in that pattern, inner groin or front of the hip, the chances are it's seven times more likely to be from the hip as opposed to the, to the lower back. So um, that's definitely something for people to remember as patients with these type of pains and for yeah, and that's why, you know, it's so important to check the hips, I guess, you know, so anyone yeah. that you're seeing for your low back pain or your sciatica or any of your symptoms, you know, that's why they are, you know, moving your hips around, you might be lying on your back, you might be asking you to squat, lunge, jump or do all these all these different types of tests. And although you might feel, you might question, you know, hopefully they've explained to you why they're doing it. But if they haven't, then it should be, it should come as a confidence that, you know, it's to rule any of these out. And these are all the things that are running through our heads when we're sat there discussing, you know, your, your, your problem and your pain, I guess, you know, which are all trying to, you know, get to the, the real root cause and the bottom of, uh, of, of your injury, really, aren't we? Yeah, I think there's, there's, a, there's a therapeutic value in that as well, isn't there? I think for the patient in, um, in the, the clinician explaining to the patient what they're doing as they're doing it and why they're doing it. So if you've come in and you've, you've got a lot of pain in the back of your buttock or in your lower back and you're clinician is getting you to squat and lunge and then they're getting you on your back and they're moving your leg around in 20 positions. It's very important that your clinician explains to you why they're doing what they're doing. And if the clinician isn't, be sure to ask them. Like, you know, you, you're going to see them. If your body, you, you are looking for answers about what's going on. It's very important that they explain exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. Hmm. And that can give you more confidence as the patient that if this person is doing a nice thorough assessment, then chances are they, they know what they're doing and they were very clear and succinct in the case explaining to me what they were looking for while they were looking for it. I think that's a really important point. Yeah, if someone's doing an examination, ask, you know, and, you know, ask, is that normal? Is that normal? You know, if, if, you're, if you're having a test done on you and it's causing some pain, you know, obviously you're going to be wondering, does this mean X or, you know, is that normal? Does everyone have that problem? Why is that different side to side? Ask, yeah, and that will help your understanding as you're going along and it will make sure that, the clinician hasn't forgotten to explain anyone and you leave with a full understanding of your body and your problem and your condition and, and everything really. So I think thanks for, for mentioning that. That's a really important, a really yeah. important point to, uh, to note. Yeah. Don't just lie there and get wiggled uh, around. Always yeah. ask. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I, Cause before I was a physio, I made that mistake. Like I played a lot of sport as a, as a teenager and I hurt my back a couple of times and I went to see, I went to see, I, I can't remember how many actual um, physios that I saw, I saw a few chiropractors as well, and I had multiple different diagnoses for what was going on with my back, and that did nothing but made me more anxious about what was wrong with my back as well. So I think, um, you know, trying to quiz your clinician about what's going on is actually quite useful. I probably didn't understand what questions to ask, and I didn't understand what they were doing as they were doing it, so I think um, from my own experience, trying to ask more questions to get more clarity about your condition so that you can understand your your condition more and therefore be in 
the driver's seat, being a bit more controlled about what's going on with your condition. That's why we started this podcast to uh, to help nice. people understand yeah. <laughs> understand their conditions and and what's going on. And because it's very easy, we've all been there. We've all seen medical practitioners for whatever the reason, not necessarily back pain and other musculoskeletal conditions for whatever it is. And you sit there, and it's very easy to get that white coat syndrome. And we sit there, nervous mm-hmm. and anxious, and oh, I, I don't want to bother the doctor, or I don't want to, you know, annoy him. He's probably really busy, and there's probably loads of other patients he needs to go and see. And it's really easy to fall into that trap. We've all been there, so you know, ask, you know, put pressure on that on that clinician to, you know, answer yeah. your questions. You know, that's what he's there for. That's what yeah. you're seeing, you know, them for him, him or her. So you know, do it. Put them on, put them on the spot. We've probably annoyed every single clinician. Yeah, sorry, clinicians <laughs> yes. out there. You have to explain yourselves. But uh, yeah, I think certainly. Yeah, what's that for? Is that good? Is that bad? Absolutely. No, no, for sure. And there are a few nerve conditions as well, which you know can cause. We spoke about that radiculopathy before, which is that you know that change in function and that you know pins and needles, that burning, that stabbing pain. You know, all these different kind of pains. There are a few other nerve conditions which can cause that in and around the hip. You know, I think neuralgia parasthetica is one of them. Do you want to take us through what, what that is and why that might be considered a, a, a differential or a, another consideration in the diagnosis of sciatica? Yeah, um, I think in all my in all my time, in all my time, I've only been a physio for a few years, um, I, I haven't really seen much of neuralgia parasthetica. I think as a student, I saw it once. And um, basically, it's... Uh, a bit of an entrapment of the nerve at the very front and lateral to your... Sorry, I'll say that again. So, yeah, moralgia parasthetica will be um, an entrapment of the nerve at the very front of your hip. So, it can sort of be front and lateral, so towards the outside of your hip. And generally, it can create, like, nervy type of symptoms around the front of the hip. Uh, you might get a, a burning type of pain. You might get some sort of um, numbness around the area. And uh, funnily enough, I actually had this myself because I had my appendix out in 20, uh, 2013. I had my appendix out. And for a good six, seven months afterwards, I had uh, discomfort, uh, lack of sensation more than discomfort, I should say, along the front of my hip. And that's quite common um, from looking at the research on appendix, on appendectomies or whatever they're called. Having the, having the appendix out and the laparoscopic procedure that they do, they, they sort of cut some of the superficial nerves around the skin mm. and that can cause uh, some similar presentation as neurology parasitic. So something to consider, you may have like burny type of pain at the front of your hip. Um, in some people it, who haven't undergone uh, surgery, it might be a case that they're wearing really tight trousers, um, really tight belts around the area that just compresses the nerve around the front of the pelvis and the hip. And uh, I, as far as I know, there is some research to show that um, excess adipose tissue, so if you've got a, quite a big abdomen, uh, you might be more likely to compress that nerve as well and it might present like sciatica. Yeah, and, and I think also pregnant uh, ladies as well. Um, yeah. So if you're pregnant, it's that, it's that pressure in the front of the abdomen, front of the tummy, isn't it, that can either from the from the inside, such as, you know, adipose tissue or, or a baby, or outside, such mm. as, as I said, that tight clothing or tight belts or, you know, I think it's also common after people have had car crashes and they've had that lap belt that's um, yeah. um, compressed it. Um, I had a patient in, in, in that in that same. So it's the same interruption of those nerves across the. Across yeah, the it's just that compression in the front of the, the 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 thigh. But yeah, but then you'll get that, as you said, that tingling, numbness, aching down the front of the thighs and all the the side of the thigh really, and uh, and it can be really painful. Um, you know, we describe it as that. 
you know, kind of tingling and numbness often. And if you look in the books, it describes that. But it can be, you know, the few patients I've had with it, it's actually, you know, it's that painful burning. People say it's like sunburn almost over mm. the side of the of the thigh, mm. really. Um, in the, I've, I've only had it in pregnant patients and not one after a car crash. But yeah, they both described it as, as quite painful, actually, which is often we don't acknowledge it, I don't think, enough. But it can be really, really horrible, <laughs> really horrible condition to have. <laughs> and then what about, um, so you kind of discussed nerves and we discussed hips. Um, what about like vascular kind of blood type things? You know, we talk about, you know, PAD and a few other conditions. Is there anything, you know, problems with, yeah. with arteries and, 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 and veins that can, that can cause any, any weird symptoms? Yeah. And I suppose this is where accuracy of, of your assessment starts to become more important for me. Um, we, we love to talk about how, uh, lumbar radiculopathy and lumbar radicular pain uh, we may not, our, our treatment may not vary a huge amount. So are we just being pedantic by trying to be more accurate or more specific with our diagnosis? Mm. And I can, I can definitely understand that point of view, but I think when these things become a bit more important is when we start to talk about things like peripheral artery disease as well. So um, when we're thinking of peripheral artery disease, we're thinking of pain with activity and pain with, um, uh, pain with walking. So um, if, somebody, if somebody comes into clinic and they have, pain down the back of their leg, um, going from their, their buttocks into their thigh and maybe into their lower leg as well. Um, we, we straight away need to consider that person's past medical history as well and if they have any comorbidity. So if somebody has um, somebody smoking, if somebody's got high cholesterol, if somebody's got high blood pressure and they're complaining of a lot of pain when they're walking and it's pain that they're getting, um, the, more, the more they exert themselves, the more pain they get then we're thinking maybe this is something to do with peripheral artery disease. So what happens is basically the arteries um, become a bit narrowed because of the, the actual pathophysiology of the, of the condition of having maybe like an ischemic heart disease. You get narrowing of the arteries and then the pressure of the blood pushing on the arteries creates more and more uh, discomfort. So the more and more somebody exerts themselves, there's more, more and more blood being pumped through the arteries and it's harder for that blood to be pumped through the arteries because of the narrowing, and that results in this intermittent claudication, pain in the legs when people are exercising. The key thing to remember if you have peripheral artery disease is that when you when you stop exercise, it should improve. And if you know, the position of your torso, of your trunk, or, or, or your legs doesn't change the symptoms, so it's purely how much you exert yourself um, will determine how much pain you actually get. Whereas somebody with... Um, sciatica the position that they're in might actually be uh, more important or the, uh, they, they may be more likely to get pain at rest um, that's the characteristic thing of radicular pain is the, the pain is absolutely so severe that it can be completely debilitating when you're at rest as well so peripheral artery disease and they, they call it window watchers disease where you know people are walking down the street and you get that build up of pain and you have to stop so you'll see people have to say see people but people will have to stop and you know look in the window for a bit and wait for that pain to pass because they stop that activity and then they carry on walking again and they stop at the next window because that pain kind of builds up again so i think some people listening to it may have heard of this of the condition called window watchers disease yeah which is as you said is quite different for that sciatica pain because it doesn't often ease like that and build up after that you know the few patients i've had they've kind of said oh you know uh, every 100 meters that's when I have to stop and they know I can walk to the the bench and then the next bench and the next bench and that's kind of when they have to stop so often there's this kind of fixed limit on it whereas sciatica can be so variable can't it you know it's a, a real mismatch in that pain mm. kind of as they're walking which is 
really horrible, <laughs> I guess. You know, it's, uh, they're not that even yeah. present. And that position, yeah, he said, yeah, as yeah. Well. I see yeah. Yeah. So, like, I think they're both they're both so painful in their own way. Um, and I think when somebody comes into you with this intermittent claudication pain in the legs when they're exerting themselves, I, I, as far as I know, there's some pretty good evidence that exercise can be quite therapeutic for them. But it probably sounds counterintuitive for the patient that you should be doing more exercise if you have peripheral artery disease. Um, but yeah, the intensity of the pain is pretty pretty bad during exercise. And then comparing that to your typical sciatica, that can be pretty bad all the time as well. And I, like there is, some, there is some recent qualitative research looking into um, people's experiences of dealing with and coping with their own sciatica. The intensity of the pain has led people to things like suicidal um, ideation. So people really, really struggling with that intensity of pain and, and limitations in their day-to-day life. And I think coming back to us as the clinicians, that shows how important our role is in being able to help them help themselves up throughout their their ridiculous pain journey, I suppose. Yeah, I think not, not underestimating it you know, is what I've learned from this. Is yeah, right. it's, it's completely life-altering. You know, when it's really bad, and it's we should be acknowledging that for clinicians listening to this, we should be acknowledging how life-altering, you know, acute, ridiculous pain is, really acute sciatica is, and it, you know, as he said from that research, you know, people have had some, gone down some pretty dark places due to this pain. So, you know, it's a again another reason why we started this to get good quality information out there to help as many people as possible. You know deal with their with their pain that's it um look what else can cause this uh, same irritation so what can mimic sciatica um let's talk about the pelvis so sacroiliac joint those joints on the back of the pelvis can that give a similar sort of pain uh it can it can give a similar sort of pain um i was obviously listening to the great mark Lazard that was on your podcast not too long ago talking about sacroiliac joint and uh, you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said that um, pain from the sacroiliac joint is most likely caused by pregnancy or a road traffic accident. So if your patient hasn't had either of these things uh, on the way to the clinic, then it might not be the source of their symptoms. Um, but yes, it can refer in the same way as sciatica would refer down the leg. Um, not an area I've looked into much about SIJ. So um, probably not very useful to go into that in <laughs> no no, that, no that's it it's, it's, it's just acknowledging that yes it can but it's uh, it is it's quite rare really in the you know i think as mark said it was quite over diagnosed as his you know it's very easy that because yeah. there's some pain over that area and the sacroiliac joints are kind of those bits just the, the knobbly bits on the base of your spine kind of left and right but the actual joints are very very deep they're a good inch kind of beneath that so just because you have some pain over that doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from that joint but you know as therapists you know 10 years ago 15 years ago when you know if you had pain over that area and a couple of tests caused it you know we used to tell people that they had some pain coming that the, the SI joint was the cause of the problem but we know now that by injecting it as Mark said that you know, often people still have pain over that area, even though we've numbed the joint completely. So that's how we know it's not necessarily always, always kind of from that area. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that raises an interesting, uh, an interesting point as well about um, pain at the site of injury and referred pain. Um, I think, as you just said there, you, you can have pain at your sacroiliac joint or the, the back of your pelvis. Um, that doesn't mean the pain is coming from that area where you're actually feeling the pain. So I think a, a nice analogy um, when you're thinking of what referred pain is, is like obviously you can have pain that's from like visceral from the organs. So 
somebody gets a heart attack, they might get chest pain, but they might also get pain in their arm. So you might get that referral into another place that's different to where the actual problem is. And that's similar to um, referral into the buttocks as well. You might get um, referral, that somatic referral, that's what we would call it, everything that's not nerve-based, so things coming from maybe a facet joint in your lower back or um, pain from muscles or tendons or bones. All these things can refer um, from the lower back into the pelvic area. So um, something to consider in your differential diagnosis as well about uh, other things that can refer into the pelvis, um, not just thinking about what's there, but what can refer to that area as well. Um, well, Luke, if we're talking about pain from muscles, should we go for the fun one? What about piriformis syndrome? A lot of our listeners have been told you have piriformis syndrome, not sciatica. Um, yeah. What does this mean? Uh, oh, God, what a question. Um, piriformis has is, is got a bad rep, hasn't it? it it's um, mm-hmm. been blamed for so much and it's done so little wrong, I think. It's, um, <laughs> it's, I don't know if it deserves all the bad, the bad publicity it gets. Uh, so I think his, historically... Pain, um, pain that's very specific in the in the buttock. People think, yep, that's piriformis syndrome. That is that dreaded piriformis syndrome. You need to stretch it, get it stronger, and that should hopefully ease the pain. Uh, you might get lots of manual therapy. You might get people sticking an elbow into that area. It could use it a short-term relief. But actually, um, it's probably not the actual cause. It's probably overdiagnosed in my experience and from what I've read. I think a lot of people go to blame it. Um, without actually, um, without actually considering what else it could be, so um, it's people will diagnose it saying that the piriformis uh, muscle and the sciatic nerve muscle run very close to each other. So if you um, if your say your piriformis muscle is really big and really strong, and you've been working really hard and getting your glutes stru- big and strong and powerful, potentially you compress that sciatic nerve around the area, so it becomes like a bit of a compressive or um, entrapment neuropathy type of problem of that nerve um, but I think as the evidence has moved on it seems like things have become um, more broad so we, we do enjoy our umbrella terms now where we start to call it our deep gluteal syndrome so it might be taking the pressure off that piriformis muscle and uh, putting it onto other structures in the actual in the actual buttocks itself so um, deep gluteal syndrome being an umbrella term for multiple different structures within the within the back of the pelvis that might be causing some sort of irritation of that sciatic sciatic nerve, and then referring down the uh, the back of the leg, similar to how uh, nerve root irritation, like a radicular pain or dysplasia, might present as well. Um, so, can it happen? I think you definitely can get pain that's from those structures in the in your buttocks but it's probably over-diagnosed as well and it's probably over-treated with lots of manual therapy techniques. Hmm. Is there anything else, Luke, that we've, that we've missed out on our big list so far? Um... Yeah. I mean, there's a load of different things, isn't there? There, there, could, be, there could be numerous different pathologies that are referring down the leg. I, I suppose in, in terms of more sinister pathologies, if we're thinking of the hip again, we, we could... You could think of something like avascular necrosis. So, um, avascular being lack of blood supply and, and necrosis being death of like cell death. Um, so, a common site for that is the is the head of the femur. So, in your your hip itself, you've got the top of your thigh bone which sits into your hip, and that can um, 
in, it's very rare. I think I read it something like, um, I think it was something like two in a hundred thousand people that have hip pain is hip pain as a result of avascular necrosis. So it's very rare, um, and it's something that might occur more in people that have had uh, that have sickle cell anemia, or that had um, like chemotherapy or taking long term steroids. They're the type of things that might crop up in somebody's uh, past medical history. That if somebody has got raging pain in their hip, where they've got raging night pain, and their movement in every direction is, is comfortable and they're not able to do anything without without uh, lots and lots of pain and discomfort, then it might raise your index of suspicion for something like avascular necrosis. But again, it is it is extremely rare. Mm. So that would be something else that would be more of like a red flaggy type of problem um, that would need more urgent input. Um, and then I suppose you, you can have like, you often see just standard things like something like a, a hamstring tendinopathy, you know, like somebody is Again, if some, a lot of people have taken up um, running. It's the only thing that people have been able to do to maintain their sanity. Lots of home workouts and lots of running over the last 12 months. And I think people who um, who rapidly increase their training volume or their running volume, maybe they're not doing a huge amount and then all of a sudden they start running and they're running up and down hills or they're sprinting really fast and really far. They might get a very specific pinpoint local pain at the very top of their hamstring. So where the, where the hamstrings attach onto the bone, you might get an area there which you can feel yourself. You might be able to feel that area where it's really, really tender, really painful if you've got pain in the back of your leg. Um, it might also coincide with somebody that's um, doing a lot of running and also works from home a lot. Maybe they're not up on their feet too much other than they're running, they're sitting down and they're sitting down on a, maybe a hard chair and they can feel that discomfort of the uh, compressing that the hamstring where it attaches onto the bone and that hamstring rubbing over the bone throughout the day as they're sitting down can cause more and more irritation of that tendon. And um, that can create quite an intense amount of pain on the back of the leg, which usually will flare up with activity and will usually um, ease off with rest to a certain degree. And it's usually a case that people have um, exceeded how much that tendon can cope with. They've exceeded that tendon's capacity to tolerate load and they start to get more and more discomfort in that area. So again, it travels, uh, the hamstring tendon where you might get the pain is sits very near to where the sciatic nerve travels. But again, it's two different things. You, you, you won't get a referral below your knee if you've got a hamstring tendinopathy. You will, you may very well get a referral below the knee if you've got sciatica. You will very unlikely get neuropathic symptoms like pins and needles, numbness and tingling with, uh, hamstring tendinopathy, but you very well may get that with sciatic. Um, so you're thinking very local to that attachment. Lofty, less so with um, sciatica, they'll travel more shooting pain on the back of the Brilliant. So there's lots of sort of crossover between all these conditions. It's like a big Venn diagram. They all meet in the middle with pain down back of leg, but then there's each individual uh, diagnosis has these different tendrils, these different uh, slight changes that you can uh, differentiate them between each other. Fantastic. I think you made a really good point earlier, Luke, in that. You know, there is an argument to say, well, is this just uh, being pedantic? You know, do we necessarily need to be um, uh, expressing the finer points of each of these individual problems? Can we not just say you got pain in the leg and and a, a therapist can crack on? I think these days we live in a world where we need these individual diagnoses because your patient will leave. And by the time they even got to the car park, they've got their phone out and they've checked on Google what we've said. So I think it's important that we are, as therapists, really um, 
careful about our diagnosis that we don't just throw in ridiculous pain when actually it's a ridiculopathy or vice versa. We don't say um, uh, sort of too many throwaway or easy catch-all terms because then the outcome may well be different or different online than we're thinking. If we're we're trying to go down this easy route of, oh, it's some sciatica and we explain it's a ridiculopathy when actually it's just a ridiculous pain, the outcome and the prognosis for that is actually quite different, although it might seem fairly similar. Um, so we're giving the, the patient false hope or false negative thoughts. We're, we're impacting um, what they think. We're no longer in a society that you say you've got dot, 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 and people say, okay, cool. And then they just take that at face value. I would say 99% of patients will go away, research, they'll find out more. We want them finding out about the right thing, not sort of chasing down the wrong rabbit hole and scaring themselves or creating a wrong impression in their minds. Completely. Yeah. 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 Completely. I, I know people, clinicians will listen to this and they'll be like, well, I don't really care if it's lumbar pain or, or um, sorry, ridiculous pain or ridiculopathy because that's not going to change what I do. I don't even care if it's piriformis syndrome because again, that might not change what I do. I'm going to do all the things that I know are evidence-based. I'm going to get them moving. I'm going to get them improving their sleep hygiene. I'm going to get them to manage their stress more. I'm going to get them doing all the things that they want to do again. But if you get six, seven, eight months down the line and there's been zero change in symptoms, you're going to need to recheck how, how accurate you were with your assessment. And if somebody's symptoms have deteriorated um, in that they've, they now have worse pain and they've lost more and more function of their leg and they actually need to be referred to an orthopedic doctor, that orthopedic doctor is going to want accuracy with their management over a longer period of time. And if they were going to do something like a, a steroid injection into the uh, into the lower back or into around that area to calm down that nerve root. They need to know exactly what's going on for them to provide accurate and rational treatment. So I think we should always be trying to be as evidence-based as we possibly can and as rational as we possibly can and not get into a comfortable position of, oh, it'll be fine, it'll just get better itself or, uh, oh, natural history will do the job for us. A lot of the time it will, but we still need to be accurate in what we're doing so we can try and give the patient the best possible opportunity to get better and give that person the control over their condition. And I think if they have better understanding of what's going on by a, a good thorough assessment, then they've got a better chance of, of having a good outcome. That's it. And I think for anyone listening, look, if you've got pain down the back of the leg, if you've got this sciatica type symptoms, we've just spent 40 minutes and we've pretty much scratched the surface of other things that it could be. Sciatica is not your diagnosis. Sciatica is a symptom that will lead you down the path with your therapist to your diagnosis. Don't take sciatica as an answer. That's the first step. Uh, Push, ask questions, get involved. um, uh, Try and get your therapist to that conclusion uh, down the rabbit hole for what is actually going on. Yeah, and I think that that's why we wanted to do this podcast was to Mm. help people understand that, you know, there are lots of things that can cause this. And this is why we are so detailed in our, our questioning of your condition, why we're so detailed in our examination of why we're you know, doing certain tests. And, you know, as therapists, I've been in poor at explaining this to patients, what I'm doing. I'm sure everyone can put their hands up and say they, they could have done a better job of explaining it to a, a particular patient at one time. And so this is just a, that reminder that, you know, patients, you know, ask these questions to uh, to your mm. to, to your clinician. And, you know, this is why, why we're, you know, putting your leg around in various places and asking you questions that, you know, might not potentially seem relevant, I guess. Yeah. You know, things like yeah. sickle cell anemia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it, it, the real world is messy. It's easy for us to 
talk about these in very distinct categories. But as we said at the start, these things intermingle and can all present together. So somebody, I, I'm thinking of different patients that I that I have that I'm seeing myself at the moment, and a lot of them will present with like lateral hip pain as if they've got a glute med tendinopathy, and they also are complaining of pins and needles and tingling down their leg. So things are all mixed and weird and wonderful in the real world. But I think trying to um, the patient to ask questions um, can also challenge the clinician to improve as well. Um, I think by quizzing your clinician, you're, you're trying to help them be more accurate with their reasoning as well, which will help the clinician to grow and will help you to better understand your, your problems. And it's like when we, when we think about um, the accuracy with our assessments, like if, if somebody is somebody does have a hamstring tendinopathy, they got pain when they're doing lots and lots of activity and it's very local to that uh bone or where, where the hamstring attached to that bone um, but then you're not sure the clinician isn't sure whether you've got sciatica or not um, and they start putting you let's say they refer you to the GP and say you've got um, sciatica uh, I think we should need to get you on anti-neuropathic medications let's put you on amitriptyline or gabapentin or free goblin something like that that's just completely off the beaten track if somebody's got a hamstring and not the, you know it's a completely mm. different thing and then they're potentially going to suffer the side effects of these medications when through a mismanagement and a misdiagnosis. So accuracy hopefully will yield a better outcome. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Definitely. I think that's a, a good note to end on really then. Uh, you know, that's a, a whirlwind tour. You know, we could have, we could do a whole podcast series on pretty much every single one of those conditions that we mentioned. So this was a was a very brief overview. And what we'll try and do in the show notes is just put the names of these conditions for anyone that... Uh, missed them or wasn't sure how to spell neuralgia parasthetica because i'm not sure i even remember how to spell it it's a a difficult I have word. no idea yeah a difficult word to spell yeah <laughs> so, so i think yeah that is a good note to end on really so um luke where can people go to find out more about you if they want to book and book a visit to see you or read more about what you've written where should they go um yeah so there's a, there's a few different spots where you can go and find out more i i have a new website uh called lukemurrayphysio.com um, not a huge amount on there at the moment because I've been slack, if that's to say the least. Um, but more information will be going up there soon and you can you can book appointments and all that sort of stuff there. If you want to have a chat with me on social media, you can go to Luke underscore Irish underscore physio on Instagram. And then I'm the uh, the Irish underscore physio on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Facebook, but I don't tend to use that a huge amount. But I think if you want to... Um, you want to let me know what you think of the podcast and if you want to have a chat about anything at all on social media you can definitely find me there on twitter if i'm not tweeting about physio stuff i'll I like to post mostly when england lose in rugby that's when i'm that's when i'm tweeting that's my favorite pastime. we had a good chat about that last week but we'll brush over that and you also post a lot about whiskey so that's always uh, always another good topic so um, yeah. and we'll delete that exactly, part entirely yeah. 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 might delete that totally from the show so. I had to get that in. <laughs> no, fair, fair enough. We'll, we'll allow one. <laughs> well, Luke, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your uh, of your Easter Easter Friday. It is today, so uh, happy Friday. Um, so, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us. Um, it's been a pleasure, um, and you were brilliant. So, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Honestly, um, I've learned so much from this podcast just from listening to it. Uh, you've had some big, big names on it, and I've learned a huge amount. So, it's uh, quite a privilege to be even invited on. And uh, I'd love to come back again and talk about more management stuff as I'm writing a management blog on Triassic at the moment. So that might be a lovely opportunity to come back and say hello again. Well, you've planned Let's yourself right in it because you, you'll definitely be back. So, Fantastic. Okay. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you everyone for listening. Dave, good night. Over and out.
Wow, that was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much to everyone who's still around listening. Dave, biggest takeaways from that episode? I really like that episode, Rob. I think that idea of being active within your consultation, it is a, a partnership. Ask your therapist what's going on. What's that test for? What's this do? You might feel like an annoying toddler, but it will create a um, uh, an understanding within you that will be so much more than someone else. What's that for? What are you doing that for? How will this help us to get an answer? I, I can guarantee you your therapist will actually quite enjoy explaining these points and will feel like you're more involved too. I, I think that's a really important part. Yes, if you're in doubt and that you're, you're, you're lying on your back or you're doing a squat or you're having your hips moved around ask you know is that normal what are you looking for what are you expecting to find when you do that test because we've all been there and we're all had a test exam we're not we're not sure of the results or we're not sure what's normal so ask you know so you know i think it's really important and you know having an active participant in a consultation is beneficial for both parties because then it helps the clinician help explain things which they may forget then also helps you ask questions which you may forget you know you walk out of a clinician's room or a, a you know surgery whatever it might be and you probably have a thousand questions or you get home and your, you know, partner, you know, parents or children say, oh, what was the problem? And you go, oh, uh, I, I think it ask. was something to do with this. Yeah. And it's because often, I mean, that's the clinician's fault for not explaining it properly, not your fault. But if you can encourage that, that rapport, that chat all the way through, then uh, it's only going to make things kind of go a bit smoother and, uh, you know, help both of your understandings. Yeah, for sure. And ask them at the time that you think of them. Because if you think I'm going to save these up and I'm going to ask these questions at the end, I can get, well, I would personally forget, if I'm quite honest, um, uh, because more questions will come up. You'll be distracted by something else. Ask those questions as they come up. And I can guarantee you, if listening to us talk for an hour at a time about back pain has taught you anything, it is that practitioners love talking about back pain. This is their jobs. It's what they do 24-7. It's what we're passionate about. And it's all we think about because we're weird. Um, so they're not going to be upset about you asking these questions. They're probably dying to explain it to, to validate what's going on. Um, so ask the questions, get involved, be a part of that consultation. I like it. The other thing as well, which was uh, I would like to touch on was this episode, we had a lot of conditions which potentially sound quite scary, um, True. you know, you know, with vascular conditions and blood clots and all sorts of things which, you know, sound a lot scarier. And you know, I just wanted to reiterate that the people who are assessing if your back pain are very well trained to look for these things. Mm. And well, yes, although these things can can occur, they are rare. And that's what we're here for. And so much of all of our training is about recognizing these things early and in learning who you should go to immediately to, you know, be best looked after us. So, or best taken care of. So, you know, that, that, that is our job. It's not for you to worry about. And that is partly the reason why we take such in-depth his history and such in-depth questions and we do such in-depth examinations, mainly to rule out all of these nasty sounding things to make sure that you are, you know, are perfectly healthy and uh, are in the right place. Absolutely. Brilliant. Right. Hope everyone enjoyed that episode. As always, if you like what you, you heard, if you can leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or where else do people listen to us? Castbox. Um, Anchor. Podcast, pod, podcast, podcast. All those ones. Yeah. Podcast place. Podcast, podcast, podcast .com. Um, If you like what we do, please, please leave us a review. It means the absolute world to us that people take the time to do that. If you like us, you can give us a follow on our social media. So give us a follow on Instagram at the Back Pain Podcast or Twitter at the Back Pain Pod underscore we're there, we're fairly active on those as well. Mm. And we love hearing from people who enjoyed the show or have any questions or would like to be featured as guests. So feel free to drop us a message anytime. That's it from us. Take care. Have a great, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.